Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the show. Thanks again. Good to be here. It is indeed. We're at uh, episode four of five. So the last episode on our passive income series will be Q&A. We've already received a lot of questions. If you are watching or listening right now and you do have questions for Drew or I, you can send them to podcast at rast.com.au. Uh, we are going to spend probably about an hour answering those questions because there are so many that we've been sent. Uh, anything investing, portfolio construction, financial planning related is what we want. Mate, today we're talking about a hypothetical scenario that I've given to you. You've got about just like 10 pages of notes here that I've just been sifting through. Um, so probably, I'll get to- Probably the same thing I do for every meeting. Yeah, yeah, you do really well. Yeah. And unfortunately, you did it in different colors so I can see everything. Um, it's really good. So if I'm shuffling papers or if you're listening and you hear me shuffling, this, that's what it is. It's all Drew's notes. Um, maybe I should start with the scenario and the scenario will be in the show notes if you do need to refer to it. So- um, I'll just, I'll just read it straight away. So Jane is 51 and Rolf is 52. They live in Brighton, La Sands, which is New South Wales. I chose that suburb because that's where uh, Raymond Jang, who is regularly on the show, that's where he lives. They live in a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house. Rolf is a sticky-fingered accountant, earning $110,000. He loves the Hawthorne Hawks and the AFL, obviously, and spends his weekends watching their two boys play sports. Jane is a midwife in Sydney working seven days of night shift every fortnight. It's a good, good gig, I believe. She earns $115,000, also on PAYG. Jane uses some of her spare days off to volunteer at the food bank, encouraging her two sons to get married and have children. So very cliche. Um, the financial picture is as, is as follows. So they've got assets. They've got super. Ralph has $340,000. Jane has $260,000. Their house in Brighton, La Sands is worth $1.4 million. They have an investment portfolio of $185,000. And I'll just be brief here what they've got. They've got the Argo Lick. They've got Vanguard VAS, the IVV ETF, a Magellan ETF. They've got BHP and CBA shares. But then they've also got a, a crypto ETF, which has $5,000 in it. It's a bit random. Outside of their brokerage, they've got cash and term deposits of $70,000. And in their offset account, they currently have $35,000. Against their assets, they have liabilities, mortgage of $450, credit card of $8,000. The two boys are 17 and 19. They both live at home, so they have massive liabilities, I can imagine. <laughs> and, then, and then we've got a car loan of $34,000. Um, so some other things that are worth noting for this, Drew, is we've got insurance is held inside super, so the three usual suspects in there. Um, Ralph is an only child and could be expected to inherit $300,000 in five to 10 years. Who doesn't love to talk about that stuff? Okay, so I'll give you the goals and then we can just start on some prompts. So for Jane and Ralph, they've heard they could retire an earn passive income of around 4% per year. That's after inflation. Obviously, we've got 5% at the moment at the time of recording, which is pretty high inflation. They're hoping to earn between sixty dollars and $80,000 in income in today's dollars. They both want to retire between 60 and 65, debt-free. So that's around 10 to 15 years. They don't want to move or sell their house because they love that part of Sydney. At the moment. At the moment, yep. Maybe in a few years if they want to downsize, but would be open to downsizing once the kids have moved out. Being an accountant. Now, uh, I think you might take offense to this one, mate. Uh, Ralph is more risk averse. So I've been very stereotypical here. Um, so he is much more concerned about capital loss than Jane seems to be. She is a high risk slash growth investor if she does her risk profile. Jane 
and Ralph would like to spend four weeks per year on a holiday, either locally or internationally after 60. Uh, so basically that would mean like every other year they go to Europe, New Zealand, something like that. Just a comfortable holiday away, nothing like they're not staying in Monte Carlo Casino or anything like that. Uh, and Jane would like to build her wealth outside super and the house. And Ralph obviously likes the tax advantage status of super. So maybe just a quick one um, before we get into the structured questions I've got for you. Is this a typical scenario? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, people, uh, we've talked about this kind of nowhere period before where, you know, your children in that peak uh, schooling age, <laughs> your 40s, you're paying down your mortgage, you're paying a lot of expenses, you're paying for four people mm -hmm. um, and you're probably entering 50, 50 plus is where your, your key part of saving is. So I think it's yeah very typical um, and a lot of people are professionals, so accountants and midwives uh, in this kind of situation. Yeah. Um, it seems like I probably the one... I don't know if this is realistic. So to your point, um, I guess maybe they are 50, so a $450,000 mortgage against a $1.4 million home. If they've been holding it for 20 years, that's probably reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's probably tracking normally just paying the minimum repayments. You can see from your uh, assumptions that they've only got 35 in the offset. So yeah. minimum mortgage over something like 20 years um, yeah. with 10 to go. When, uh, here's a question for you. With, with your clients, like say there's, they have two boys, one's 17, one's 19. So my assumption here would be that maybe one of them has two years of school, like he's currently this year and next year. Yep. What does a private school fees cost? I feel like it's pretty high. Depends. I'm looking at, I've got two boys uh, that are one and four, or nearly four at the moment. So I'm trying not to think about it too much. Yeah, but, right. Um, Jamie, my business partner, has three kids, I think mostly in private school. <laughs> I can go anywhere from you know the 35s, I think, to $60,000 wow. a year. Um, which is an important wow. expense for a lot of people. Um, and how do you plan for it? Some people set up sort of family trusts and invest separately. Some people just view their own assets as set, uh, set aside for school fees. Yeah. Um, but definitely something you need to prepare for. Yeah, we, um, we've done an episode on the Australian Finance Podcast we did quite a few years ago. We looked at um, the, the payoff, basically. There's been a heap of studies done that sh you know, may show that you, may as you could probably just take the money, the two or $300,000 and invest it for them and help them otherwise well prepayment um, is also an option apparently. yeah yeah you can we get lower the prices yeah <laughs> so and the more kids you have the more you save i yeah. believe so <laughs> that's financial advice 101 there we go okay mate so um let's just talk about it at a high level then uh, how do we take what we've just what i've just given to you so all these assets all these liabilities how do we take that it's kind of like a, a medley of things and put it into something you know, structured. For the first point. thing we try and do is find holes in the story. So the first thing I saw was that they they live in Sydney, but they support Hawthorne. Um, wow. <laughs> that was the first. You can't help but have good taste. Call mate. out I had in there. <laughs> uh, but seriously, it, it's a massive amount of information gathering. So there's all kinds of questionnaires, getting statements, finding out the specific details of every account, every asset they own. Mm -hmm. um, on a, on a taking a, you know a couple of meetings and asking probing questions on different areas um, are the things they're saying matching up to what they're actually doing so similar to the Hawthorne concept <laughs> but uh, if they say, say said they're saving ten thousand dollars or fifty whatever it happens to be are they actually doing that is yeah. that showing in their superannuation or their other assets do you find um, sorry just to interrupt do you find that people clean for the cleaner in this regard like they try and make things look good and then they come in it's like a confession they come in and they go oh we've got this and we've got that they never really confess you just kind of work it out over time and, <laughs> yeah. you, and you know the signs um what would be I a think, sign 
<laughs> What's a sign? Yeah. Well, when you say you're saving $100,000 a year, but you have no savings, it's <laughs> a good yeah. sign okay. when you come in. I think the problem with everyone does a budget and they tend to do a forward-looking budget. You probably talked about this too. Mm, Whereas no. the most powerful budget is one that looks at what you've actually done. There's no point having a budget of what you're going to do because we know they, you know, hmm. things yeah, always point. change. So you should assess what you've actually done when you're seeing an advisor, find out what you've actually spent over the last six months um, to get a real understanding of what you're saving. Mm. So I think that that's probably an important one. Um, asking all questions around their experience with investing, what are they trying to achieve, what sort of income levels which you've kind of uh, mm. identified in the goals, um, what have they invested into in the past. Uh, you've talked about one being risk-free and one risk-averse. What? Why? Mm. So I, I don't assume accountants are all <laughs> conservative, but um, what is the reason for that? Um, the other one you you identified superannuation that one person preferred super the other one didn't so mm. understanding why that's the case a lot of the first meetings are kind of almost behavioral and talking to people about the kind of preconceived notions of investments mm. um, and then it kind of moves into uh, yeah the the nuts and bolts so what specifically do they want to achieve from this yeah right um, do you find that people are reluctant to give you everything. I've heard some stories in the past. When I was studying financial planning, I heard stories of people that would not divulge all the information because they, for one reason or another, maybe they don't trust their advisor, maybe they've had a bad experience, maybe they don't really talk about it with their partner. Yeah. Do you find that? Uh, it has been a problem. We, as a kind of boutique firm, we can't, we don't deal with massive amounts of people. Um, yeah. And essentially, we, we won't take the initial meetings until we have a full questionnaire and full background kind yeah. of, of what those assets look like. Otherwise, you would spend a lot of time trying to catch up to what you need to, to provide advice. So we're under the recently uh, uh, sorry, introduced legislation, we actually have to consider all other asset or all other assets and and the broader financial impacts of advice we provide so you don't really have a choice yeah. as an advisor to just go oh no they don't want to tell me yeah oh, they yeah, didn't mention that yeah, yeah. Like this. yeah you can't assume away anymore yeah um which i think is is great yes yeah, it's, yeah it's, well, it's, it's more transparent for the whole industry isn't it um okay so we've got like a pretty good super balance from ralph 340 260 from jane which they obviously they'll probably work on uh, got an investment portfolio of 185,000, 1.4 million in the house, of value of the house. They got 70K in TDs uh, in cash and 35K in offsets. So just to rehash the assets there. What are like two easy wins, two or three easy wins? Like what could these guys do just straight off the bat? You're looking at it, okay, interesting. The first thing I saw was why hold cash and term deposits if you've got a mortgage that's non-deductible, um, particularly mm. relevant now that interest rates are going up on mortgages. I think CBA increased by one point. Four percent or something today. Yeah, I think, yeah something like that. Yeah, um, yeah one point four. So you know, you're holding cash. Your offset can be treated like a cash account. The way I manage my mortgage. So why hold cash that's returning nothing while you're being charged interest on and tax? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so one easy one would be put all your cash and term deposits into the offset, and effectively you're getting the guaranteed return of mm. the variable home loan rate because yep. you're not paying it anymore. Um, the other one, we review insurance to make sure a lot of people are, can be overinsured uh, mm. depending on who set up your insurance, the timing, if your circumstances have changed. So make sure, one, they're not overinsured and two, that their policy premiums are uh, competitive. Um, most are these days. There's not a lot of difference between insurers but making sure that, yeah, 
they aren't ridiculous. Um, I mean, is it pretty common that they have their insurance inside super, so income protection, life, and TBD? It is fairly common, um, particularly with probably industry funds uh, and then corporate super. So if you were part of a bigger firm at some point, you would have been defaulted into super. Yep. Uh, and most people will hate outgoings and expenses in their hmm. own from yeah, their own income. So then it's real, right? Yeah, putting <laughs> it in Super's super, it doesn't matter. It's yeah, a kind of set and forget uh, for a lot of people that way. I mean, the other one was you only asked for two, but I'll give you three. Mm-hmm. Um, was just to review their superannuation. So. The default nature of super means you could be in a fund that's not performing particularly well, doesn't match your circumstances, fees are higher, could be a corporate plan, could be an industry fund. Um, so what are you paying for it? What investment option are you in? Mm. Um, and make sure that's aligned. Yeah. How about, um, I didn't put it in the notes, but how about if say someone come in, like say Jane and Ralph, they're in a, I don't know, some corporate super fund and they, the, they notice that the fee is 1.2%. Yep. Is that too high? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, you think the average, uh, you, if you're talking invest, investment fees only, because yeah. obviously there's advice fees and investment yeah. fees, yeah. Uh, you always compare it back to an industry fund and average industry funds are about 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 for investment only. Yeah. Uh, so 1.2 is expensive compared to them. And then you consider, obviously, fees aren't the only thing, is performance yeah. up to scratch. And usually if fees are high, performance <laughs> yeah. is, isn't always isn't a, as good. Yeah. Um, okay, did, what but there's a risk, right, uh, with changing super because you could lose insurance and stuff like that. So is that something you take into account as well? Yeah, a key part of the process. So uh, probably going back to the first part of the question is the um, – or the first question is the process of providing advice. So it's a massive amount of information gathering. Mm. Then we'd usually provide a scope of advice that we'll send to the client to approve and prepare what in the industry is known as a statement of advice. We split that into strategy and investment, so almost two documents. Um, and strategies, everything from superannuation, contributions, reviewing your insurance, putting forward recommendations for each part, and then telling you what the risks of doing that are. So if we're going to recommend changing superannuation plans, we have to consider what the implications are for insurance. Does that mean some cases you'll we assist with applying for insurance in a, a new uh, superannuation account, or it could be if you keep a minimum balance in the super account, you can keep your insurance um, yeah. and roll the yeah, which tends to happen. Your balance somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Quite often. I mean, I've got my insurance at an industry fund, but I run an SMSF, so it's kind yeah. of yeah. Well, you get the group insurance, like right, because like, you yeah, your policy, your risk is spread. I won't say which fund it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So speaking of super, um, they kind of have different opinions on whether they should build wealth inside or outside of super. So um, obviously, we've got uh, Ralph, the accountant. He likes. You know, he knows the tax rate's 15% for his super fund. Yeah. Um, Jane's a bit more hesitant. She's heard things like, oh, then the money's locked away to retirement and all that sort of stuff. Um, would you advise them to build wealth inside or outside of super or both? In On a broad basis, we'd generally suggest most people try and have two-thirds of their retirement capital in super at retirement. Two-thirds, uh, And right. one-third outside. Okay. Um, I think you've got a follow-up question later on that talks about when super becomes appropriate. I think as you enter your 50s, noting that you can't access your super until you're 60, yep. and then depending on what stage of life you're in, are you got a lot of debt, are you changing jobs, have you got a lot of savings capacity, um, you'd probably start considering super at the moment. Uh, and I think the – I mean, by, by far, superannuation is the best – 
entity through which to hold your retirement assets. Mm. As you said, it's not just the 15% tax rate on income now. It's the fact that it's completely tax exempt once you start drawing an income from your superannuation. Yeah. Um, you don't pay tax when it comes out either. So I'd convince as much as I can, yeah. <laughs> um, Jane, to embrace super at the appropriate time. Yeah. Uh, but I think, yeah, that one-third, two-third split is is kind of a rule of thumb we use would you say kind of, so they're on 110 to say roughly each 20 what's so how much would they be contributing say 10 percent, so ten thousand eleven thousand dollars each concessional yep. contributions what twenty seven and a half thousand. yep so they've got 15 16 grand that they could top up would you maybe suggest that as something they could look at or yeah i'd put it forward probably not to the full limit depending on uh, obviously we look at the marginal tax rates and how much additional tax you're paying versus contributing to super plus okay. they have a mortgage they're repaying so you'd probably look to top it up a bit just to have more disciplined saving yep. um, but always wary that most people's main objective is to pay off their mortgage before putting more into into super as well it's actually something that i thought about this morning uh, before we re- recorded this that um, some people probably aren't aware that you can now use unused uh, concessional contribution caps. Yep. Is that right? So can you just explain that for people that might be listening? <laughs> not, not the peak of my specialty, but uh, I think there's certain – if your balance is below $500,000, you can use concessional contribution up to that 27500 which used to be $25,000 yep. um, for the last – three years and do catch-up contributions and essentially get the get the uh, tax deductions associated with them as well, yep. um, which is, I think, powerful for people like this that are nearing retirement and yeah. about to go through a period of heavy saving. Yeah, because if they um, didn't have a mortgage, probably the next best thing for them would be superannuation, right? Definitely. So yeah. then um, they could make use of something like that if they weren't aware that's something. We'll put links in the show notes to the ATO uh, website for that as well. Um, okay, so... And that's something that forms our advice as well. So within the statement of advice, we'd say here's a contribution strategy, here's what you can do and here's what we recommend over the next 10 years, yep. how much you can contribute each year and, and what ha- the result is. Actually, I'll, I'll hold that question for a minute. Okay, so um, so the benefit of having putting extra money in super is the tax benefit. Um, are there any other benefits associated with that? Like, What would be the risks to doing that? Is it just being locked up? So you get the tax deduction. Obviously, you're reducing your taxable income by the amount you contribute. If you contribute outside of your salary, you get a $1 for dollar tax deduction. The income tax rate is only 15% in superannuation and the capital gains tax rate is effectively 10% on mm-hmm. realized capital gains. Um, the, the, the negative is you can't access it until you're 60, so at least 60 essentially. So... Massive tax benefits versus uh, preservation is what it's called. Okay. And um, you said that like if once you hit 50, that's when you might be starting to take a serious look at what what you're contributing and how you can use that more effectively. Yeah, very lifestyle-based as well. So if you've got a million dollars in debt, you probably wouldn't even – and you want to repay it before you retire, you probably wouldn't even think about contributing until that's down to a more controllable level. But um, from 50 onwards is where we most – most regularly see the best opportunity and you know the eight years from retirement accessing your super is a bit more comfortable for yeah, people for sure to, to start allocating capital away and then that assumes you know you don't want to buy a holiday house you don't want to do some something crazy or, <laughs> or major start a start a business or anything like that uh speaking of um something crazy i'm sure there are some um folks in uh, sandals uh, licking their chops at the uh, equity that's been built up in this house. So they've got a $1.4 million house and $450,000 mortgage. 
by my calculations, that's about a million dollars in equity. Um, I'm sure there's some uh, property spruker out on YouTube that would love to take that equity and roll it into something. But even me, like if I look at that and I think, well, that's a million dollars of equity. I wonder if I could redraw that and use it in other ways. What, do you, what would you say to something like that? Would you pay it down? Would you like? Would you advise? We're very much about take as little risk as possible to achieve the goal that you want. So on their current situation, is it possible to generate the income they want? Because uh, obviously introducing additional leverage at this point is mm-hmm. locks them into a strategy and increases the, For the sure range of outcomes. Um, I think naturally people want to use that equity. Yeah, um, they could say, well, I'll go and buy that investment property, which you were just saying, I'll use equity for, for it. Don't have to outlay any cash. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> then you end up, yeah, you end up paying more debt and you, you're risking things like in interest rates going up and going, you know, going negative or the returns on that are, um, aren't as good as expected. So, uh, when, mm. yeah, we say we're probably more conservative. Most of our clients are closer to retirement than this one would probably be um, my excuse or <laughs> response to that yeah um I'd, usually if you're in your 40s definitely um as you're getting closer and given your retirement dates within 10 years are starting to the balance is getting a bit more difficult to justify i think well there's a risk to every um i guess reward in this case you know if you take on that risk it's a lot who knows how long the mortgage is for and when you refinance and your job you know security and all that sort of stuff comes into play as well yeah exactly yeah and you're locking a large amount of your asset base into single asset class if it's property particularly. Yeah. Okay. So um, for those people that – I don't know if I've mentioned this. I feel like I have before. Um, the episode that we did on this type of scenario where I just quiz you with questions was actually our second most popular episode ever. Um, had you and Jamie on the show to do it uh, last time. So one of the goals for Jane and Ralph was that they would love to earn between sixty dollars and $80,000 per year from their – portfolio their wealth overall uh once they hit retirement so that's in today's dollars and they don't plan to retire for another 10 or 15 years say what type of nest egg would they need to earn that there's a bit of a mixed uh selection of or mixed bag of uh forecasts that people use for this so we have a simple rule and we we work generally on the assumption that our clients um want to leave money to their family and children as well as the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but also we also know that people don't know when they're going to die <laughs> <laughs> to be to be super dark. Um, so a lot of the modeling, I found some, I think it was on CanStar, that talked about this type of person retiring at 60, wanting 70 grand a year, would need about one point, between one and 1.1 million in okay. assets. But most of that modeling is based on the assumption that you live to your life expectancy, not less, not more. Um, and we, I mean, we've, I think I've discussed the rule of thumb before that we have a very simple uh, assumption that has changed in different market environments, which is you should be able to generate about 5% in income from your portfolio uh, each year. Uh, so that puts the $70,000 income at about anywhere from 1.2 to 1.6 million. So about 10, 20, 20 to 30% above the kind of uh, life expectancy assumption, but it gives you more of that buffer mm. that you're not on your last dollar yeah. when you're on your deathbed, yep. which is kind of um, trying to keep it bright, not yeah. dark. <laughs> no, that's fine. So, so basically saying 5% uh, income. What about CPI? Does that factor in here? Yeah, so that's just the income production of the portfolio, whether that portfolio's got term deposits, you know, bonds, 
Aussie equities, domestic equities alternatives. Uh, CPI and growth would be on top of that. CPI is challenging at the mm, moment with yeah, five, inflation at 5 and 8% yeah. or 11 in the UK. Yep. Um, but, I mean, over the long term, it's still sitting at about 2 to 3%. So, essentially, you want to – the issue we see is a lot of people focus only on the income and the income they can produce. But the problem with that is you would have seen if you're buying assets or companies that don't reinvest in themselves, you get a company that goes nowhere or goes backwards. You're effectively mm. investing in a bond um, where I think the most important thing when you're trying to generate income over 30 years is that your income is growing along with your capital. Um, yeah. So I think that that growth, we still think the typical objective is about CPI plus 4 to 5% which just kind of fits in there. So you, they get their 5% in income and 2 to 3% in growth. Um, okay, that makes sense. Because that's a, a, the question on everyone's mind is like the rule of four, which like the safe withdrawal rate basically assumed 3% interest, uh, 3% inflation, right? Um, and so you're saying the big question is, do they want to leave anything to the next generation? Because if they don't, then they can they can die with zero effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And what what probability do they want to put around it? We've I think we mentioned in here the uh, uh, asset consultants we work with do probability uh, analysis yeah. of different outcomes and different asset allocations, and they can tell you based on buying Aussie equities or domestic equities or global equities, the probability of basically ten CPI plus everything from zero to ten percent, and you can see the probabilities. Yeah, right. Go quickly negative or positive on a few um, different changes in there. Yeah, right. So, um, so that's actually a good segue into this question: is then how should they? Like, what would their strategic asset allocation look like? We've talked about in the episodes gone by. We talked about the four buckets. You've got defensive, alternative, defensive, growth, alternative growth. Yep. Um, if you want to break it down that way, you could, or you could just say, you know risk on risk off or bonds versus stocks uh, however you want to frame it what kind of return would they need what kind of portfolio would they need to match that goal uh in retirement so i said you'd probably be more aggressive now in their 50s so okay. you'd be looking anywhere up to you know 15 percent in defensive and the rest in growth and that defensive okay. because they can't access a super and most of it's going to be through superannuation is more there to have capital to, to deploy into markets times like the moment yep. um, that would naturally de-risk as you got close to retirement the the five percent assumption we have comes from a balanced growth portfolio if you want to call it that which is closer to say 35 defensive and 65 uh, growth um, okay. not a traditional balance which would be 50 50 so you do have to take a bit more risk to get the, that kind of um, income and then within that we try and balance uh the need for income and growth as we were talking about before so we would you'd usually split uh equities evenly between overseas and domestic and then you obviously get better income from domestic equities and better growth from overseas uh historically so that, anyway so that's how you would tilt the portfolio if you as a, yeah as yeah. a starting point and then you kind of work back from there to to adjust for people's comfort the types of instruments people prefer to invest with and mm. okay um so we just talked about retirement and um, leading up to retirement. Uh, the, the, one of the things that I see a lot of people uh, kind of debate with when they get to this, this period of their life is, well, maybe a few years on from these guys, is they think, should I keep working even part-time? Yeah. Are there advantages to that, do you think? I think, I mean… Uh, like we know that there's money coming in, but any others? Yeah, if you, if you know you're in a reasonable position and you've got enough to retire… Um, 
we as an advisor, we tend to do more of this behavioral and, mm-hmm. and personal advice yeah. than we do the financial part. Like most of our meetings are about family or uh, other challenges going yeah. on in people's lives. So I found people who work longer tend to live longer, mm-hmm. which is, I think there's data, there's probably data and um, confirmation of that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a, a finite end to work and then going out into the world with maybe playing golf and that's it. It mm-hmm. kind of, you need a real ecosystem of things to do. I know a lot of clients we speak to are actually more busy now than they were mm. when they're working, but after that's, you know, some volunteering, some uh, paid work and babysitting, yep. <laughs> unpaid babysitting is <laughs> yep. pretty big. Um, so generally I've seen it positively for for most people um, continuing to work and you get the added benefit of, of, of money, but um, yeah, I think also not, you know, most people's social community uh, communities come from their work and a lot of their identity does as well. So the, the personal side is incredibly important. Mm, okay. Well, that's pretty straightforward then. So, um, yeah, I, I've actually seen some research on this, by the way, that show that people, I mean, maybe it's causation versus correlation, but people that work longer tend to have lower chance of a lot of um, uh, illnesses as well, yeah. things like dementia and all that sort of stuff. So um, definitely as well as the financial side of things. So like, we've got what they, like eight years away say from ralph hitting 69 years for jane uh, realistically 450 grand left on the mortgage a credit card can they retire tax-free and with the 1.2 to 1.6 million i initially thought no but then i realized when you were introducing that they were getting an inheritance as well yeah. and that's kind of a long forgotten i think maybe you back tested this before you gave me the scenario <laughs> I so i just made it up <laughs> would test me in advance um i, I think that inheritance point is an important one though because most people that we meet haven't factored in that they're mm. going to inherit a significant amount and i think the next generation is the biggest uh, transfer of wealth in history um so if you know you're going to inherit 300,000 or 500 or a million dollars or more um will you change the way you act based on that i know you don't know when you're going to get it but you probably can Mm. change slightly change your investment approach the way you live maybe buy that slightly bigger house um with some level of comfort even if you know it's not coming for a decade or more um i think they're actually in a reasonable position so the first thing i said is they probably save around 40 grand a year if that was a fair assumption um so if you sold all your assets paid off your mortgage uh, you could probably save an extra 160 grand before um, retirement, mm-hmm. four years. Yep, uh, take you about 900,000 in super. If you add your 300,000 dollar inheritance when that comes in, you get to about 1.2 million, and that's without considering investment returns mm. in that period as well. So, without the inheritance, I thought they'd probably need to work a bit longer. Yeah. Um, but when you start factoring that in, uh, and then you've obviously got potential for a downsizer to top up um, yep. their balance at some point in the future as well. Yeah, do you see that? Is that uh, common for a lot of your clients to downsize and then use that contribution into super? Increasingly, over the last, uh, I think there'd be probably twenty five percent of our clients have downsized in the last two years. Oh wow! Um, most have a, probably have a holiday house and a principal residence, and they downsize their principal residence buy something easier to to manage in the city, apartments, and mm. uh, and then yeah, obviously you can downsize. As long as you've held the property 15 years, you can downsize for as long as you want, as old as you want. So There you go. Yeah, I love the uh, every time the government comes out with a new rule, it basically just means that properties are just recycled and 
the baby boomer <laughs> generation can just sell the bigger house and move into the smaller one that maybe the first home buyer could have afforded, <laughs> um, but now there's no chance. <laughs> um, stamp duty is a problem. There. Yeah, that's, that's another it. one. Yeah, it's a killer. That's why some states are dropping it, right? That's why no one wants to sell either because yeah. they have to pay when they buy. For sure. Now, land taxes are coming in. That's a, that's a f- bit of friction for a lot of people and property too. Um, we actually glazed over something here. They have $185,000 in investment portfolio. Um, they've got IVV, the ETF, the S&P 500, VAS, Aussie shares, Argo, which is like blue chip shares. Um, they've got Magellan, which is the global fund in the ETF form or like the listed fund form. They've got BHP shares, 25 grand of that, 20 grand of CBA. Um, and then they've got a crypto ETF for five grand. What do you make of that? Would you just like, would you sell that and then put it in Subar or what would you do with that? Uh, depending on their priority and capital gains, the first thing I said was there's a bit of overlap there. So the biggest holdings in C- in VAS and Argo are CBA and BHP. So yeah. I'm guessing they inherited CBA and BHP, um, but you'd probably just consolidate those. Uh, if they're keen on reducing their mortgage, um, sell them, put into the mortgage. That'll free up savings capacity. Then you can then pay off your mortgage quicker, pay less interest, and then contribute to super quicker. That's the most conservative way. And then the other one, in the back of your head, you say, well, essentially they're just leveraging because that 185 could be is essentially the equity they've got in their home. That mm. they, It's just a leveraged share portfolio. That most people probably don't think about it. What about <laughs> um, when the mortgage, say, gets down? So that would probably, that roughly would take it down to $260,000 in the mortgage. Yep. Um, we- <laughs> Would you uh, keep the mortgage, even if they pay the mortgage down to $1 or whatever, is that a pretty common strategy where people keep the mortgage open? I think, yeah, most people are afraid of debt because they've spent their whole life trying to pay it off. But it's becoming more and more difficult to get a loan after you retire and you're 60, 65 plus. But it's, it's incredible. You know, it's reasonably cheap capital. You can draw on it whenever you need to. So where possible, you definitely keep it open. Yeah. Um, you know, Even if there's a couple hundred bucks you, of fees. If you or need whatever. to put a deposit on when you go and uh, buy your downsize house because a lot of people buy the downsize before they sell, yep. um, you've got additional flexibility there. Yeah, cool. Whether yeah. the bank lets you do it is another and story. final curveball is this crypto ETF, $5,000, mate. What are they going to do with that? When do they buy it was the first question. <laughs> Probably in November last year. Or, November yeah, 2021. Yeah, at the peak? <laughs> yep. Uh, I mean, you can't say no to everything. So the, what, <laughs> what, what our general view is, is get your core right. So make sure your super is invested appropriately, uh, your equities are invested appropriately, and then this is something you believe in, something that's fun, but it's outside your core. So yeah. just let it roll. <laughs> what, what do they say? Hold on for dear life. Is it? Let it rip, let it rip back up, yeah. they say. Yeah. Uh, okay, so crypto, $5,000, it's make or break. Um, mate, this has been a bit of fun. Um, I imagine you have a lot of clients that present with similar situations, maybe like you said, a little bit older. Um, but I hope uh, people that were listening also got a fair bit from this because that are, that are potentially younger because it's actually really good to see it in practice to zoom out of stock by stock or ETF or fund by fund and actually look at the whole pictures. It's really interesting and i think it's interesting and not enough people pay attention to everything else yeah they often wait until their 40s 50s or 60s to get advice 
to consider all the other things that they have at their disposal. Well, there's a cartoon of uh, someone visiting a financial advisor for the first time before their retirement date yeah. and it says, here's your chance to be a hero. <laughs> <laughs> no planning whatsoever, just give it to the advisor on retirement <laughs> date and hopefully you're all good. Yeah, she'll be right. Yeah, well, it's just a, you know, even just a few of these things, if we're talking about super debt, whatever, makes yeah. a massive difference. So the full, by the way, if you're listening and you um, would like to revisit this, you can go into the show notes where you'll find um, the, the case study, but also uh, links to the Waddle Partners website. Uh, and stay tuned for episode five of Passive Income, where we answer your questions. Please send them in podcast at ras.com.au. That's podcast at rask.com.au. Drew Meredith, CFP. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks again.